On March 24, 1991, one of the oldest and largest redwood trees in California crashed to the ground. Someone who lived a mile away said it sounded like a train wreck. Vibrations from the falling tree were felt for over 10 miles away. The tree has been named the Dyerville Giant, and it still lies where it fell. It once stood 372 feet tall. That's over a 30-story building. Its diameter is 17 feet, and its circumference is 52 feet, because you can still go and measure it. It once weighed over a million pounds, and it's estimated to be over 2,000 years old. We have a couple of pictures of California redwoods. I guess they're already up. Um, any, how many have been to California to one of the 17 national forests and seen the redwoods? Okay, several of you have. I never have. I just look at pictures. I think pictures are cool. But, you know, they have people who climb these trees just to measure them. They, they count every limb, and they estimate uh, the size of every limb, and they estimate what it takes to enable that to be to live and how the environment is going to affect uh, a forest like that. Now notice the smaller trees. They have to figure out how to grow around those super giant uh, trees. Um, the redwoods are the tallest trees on earth and uh, known to have reached at least 382 feet, 385 feet with a 60-foot circumference. They're also probably the oldest living thing on earth, at least that we've documented, and estimated to be three to 4,000 years old. So how do they grow so strong? How do they weather the storms of life? How do they weather floods? Because they typically endure a lot of floods. How do they endure fires? Because they typically are around... Uh, forest fires? The answer is they need a healthy environment. They, uh, a mature redwood requires several hundred gallons of water every day. Figure that one out. Um, they need the proper nutrients. The same kind of question can be asked about the Christian life. How do Christians grow strong? How do Christ followers uh, grow strong? How do we grow spiritual red, redwoods, so to speak? Uh, how do we enable Christians to thrive? Because that's what we're about in the book of Colossians. That was Paul's concern for the church in the first century when he wrote Colossians chapter 2. I want to invite you to turn there. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 6 through 15. If you, have a, if you need a Bible, just uh, slip up your hand. And uh, I think Greg would be glad to pass one out need a Bible? Yep, there's a few people. You're going to need a text to follow along this morning, so I'd encourage you to grab one if you don't have one. I know you got your phone, so you can use your phones. Just don't put them on speaker, please, until Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So the first principle we're going to look at is grow strong. How simple is that? Grow strong in verses 6 and 7. How do you do that? Well, verse 6, just as you receive Christ, continue to live your lives in Him. Continue moving forward daily. Um, This verse looks back 
at the Colossians' conversion to Christ. Um, Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, the Colossians didn't grow up as Christians. You know, I just always heard about it, grew up. The, The Colossians came to faith primarily as adults. And this idea of Christianity was entirely new. Remember, they're Gentiles. They're far from God geographically and spiritually. And the gospel came to them. And all of the information about who Jesus is and what he had done for them, that he died on the cross and that he paid the penalty for their sins. And the way to have access uh, with God and to God is by believing who Jesus is and what he's done believing that Christ died and paid the penalty for their sins. And they got that. But it wasn't just that they believed in a creed or a doctrinal statement that had the correct information. They believed in a person, a living person named Jesus. And when they did place their faith in Jesus, who was, was alive and well then and he's alive and well today, when they place their faith in Jesus, they receive an abundance of things, including eternal salvation and the forgiveness of sins. They became children of God and citizens of heaven. They were sealed in the Holy Spirit. They also received Jesus as a person. And uh, through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, they received Jesus personally. And Paul is saying, just as you received him already, don't stop, don't get sidetracked, don't get stuck, because we tend to get stuck sometimes, don't we? He says, continue, move forward, get on with it, live as a follower of Christ, and follow Christ. So uh, he wants us to grow strong, he wants us to uh, keep moving uh, daily. Also in verse 7, stay rooted in Christ. He, he says, verse 7, the last part, being rooted and built up in Him. It's staying rooted like a tree, a tree that's firmly planted. How about a, how about a spiritual redwood? You know, a, a redwood tree that grows over 300 feet tall uh, has a root system that's five or six feet deep. What do you think of that? Man, that would blow over easy, wouldn't it? 300 feet tall over five or six feet deep and it requires hundreds of gallons of water every day. They also grow out a hundred feet. The root system grows out a hundred feet. And in a forest, you get all these hundred feet intermingled and intertwined together into a very powerful, strong foundation that holds up all the trees. God has an interesting design to creation, doesn't he? Takes a community to grow strong, rooted and build up. The idea of uh, rooted is the idea of that foundation being built up is that idea of continuing to grow, continued to to grow and thrive spiritually. Um, A redwood tree has to get water from the soil to all its leaves. Now think about that. They often grow near uh, riverbeds, and so there's a lot of moisture there, and so they just suck up water from rivers when they can, when, they're, when, they're, when there is water there. And um, think about this. 
they uh, transport water from the root system 300 feet in the air. How do they do that? I don't know. God has a plan here. And I understand that as water evaporates off the leaves, it creates a vacuum in the system that draws water right up to the top. I didn't say how fast it goes because I don't have a clue how fast it goes. But they have another thing that happens. Usually these trees that get over 300 feet, uh, redwood forests, you know, California, near the coast is where they grow. And uh, they're often around fog from, from the coastline. And those trees just take that fog and turn it into rain. It condenses on the tree leaves, and then it rains. Where does the rain go? It goes right down to the roots and right back up again. Uh, Hundreds of gallons a day to some of these huge trees. Um, Now think about those. You know, we just saw pictures of these giant trees, and then in the background there was these smaller trees. Some of those trees are 30 or 40 feet tall. They look pretty big in our yards. But they're just down there. They hardly get any sunlight, and yet they grow in that community of trees. So the Apostle Paul says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live in Him, uh, rooted and build up in Him. It's about being in Christ. It's about being in Him. It's about being in relationship with Him and other believers. Let me go back and just read to you the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul is very concerned about us uh, knowing who Jesus is and understanding who Jesus is. He says, He, going back to verse uh, 13 and 14, He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. I'm not going to reteach this, but I want to read it. For by him all things were created. Who is the creator God? Who was there on the day of creation? It's our Jesus. He created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or all authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Implications, all of the spiritual world, all of the angels were created for him. Good angels, evil angels were created by him and eventually for him. You were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is holding the redwoods together right now, and he's holding every molecule in your body and cell together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. That's the Father's desire for Jesus, is that the Son of God have supremacy in all things, including our lives. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Remember that? Fullness. Key word in the first century to the Gnostic uh, philosophy, Greek Gnosticism, and this idea of fullness or pleroma. We're going to come come to this again, so I'm not going to talk about it now anymore. And through him to reconcile uh, to himself all things, whether things on earth or things on heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is Jesus they received. He's on their side, and he's on our side. And we are to continue to walk in him. So also in verse 7, we are to continue. We're to be rooted and built up. 
for to be strengthened. Look at verse 7. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Strengthened in the Christian faith as you were already taught. He's saying this to the Colossians. As you were taught the word of God. That's where your strength will come from. That's where you, you will get all of your spiritual nutrients to nourish your soul. We need God's word like a redwood tree leads water. Uh, I don't know how much hundred, hundreds of gallons of God's word a day would be like. I'll tell you what, you are not going to grow without God's word. You are not going to grow without God's word. You know what I do every week? I'm supposed to teach God's word, but I'm just spoon feeding. That's all I can do. Once a week, I just lay out a little bit on your plate. You sort of take it and chew on it. Take it home, but that's just once a week. That's better than nothing, but that's not going to help you nearly as much in the week unless you are in God's word for yourself. Uh, our growth is stunted without, good, without uh, God's word. It stops without God's word. You know, we look around in the room, and uh, we have adult physical bodies, but if we could see each other spiritually, do we have adult spiritual lives? Or are we infants spiritually? Uh, God wants to grow us up. I love Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, kind of a well-known passage. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take. So a blessing, God's favor on a particular kind of person. Um, he doesn't stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, meaning God's word. His delight is in God's word, or her delight is in God's word, who meditates on his law day and night, who meditates on God's word. Next slide. That person is like what? A tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers it's so important to be in God's word to prosper spiritually to grow spiritually one of the things to notice about this uh, this person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season now, please know it doesn't say it yields fruit 24-7 we want things now it yields fruit in season. At the right time, in God's time and in God's season, you will bear the fruit that he wants you to do. He wants you to. And there are times it seems, it seems dry. Spiritual life seems dry, doesn't it? It seems like, man, God, where are you? You're so quiet. You're silent. Help me, you know? And it's just, I live by faith day after day, waiting for God to bear fruit in my life. And it comes in God's time. Um, so, let's not get sloppy with God's word. Some of you just need to be reminded, this is mostly what I do, is I just mostly remind you, you need to get back to the scriptures. You need to get back to reading God's word. How much should you read? I don't know. I don't have a rule for you. Some of us like rules. Should I read seven days a week? Go ahead, do it. What if I only read six? What if I only read five? What if I only read... Four. What if I only read three? See, some of you need a number. 
And, you know, be regular in God's Word. One day a week is better than zero. Two days is better than one. Three days is better than two. Be regular. Make this a part of your regular life. Um, I reminded of uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7, where Paul tells Timothy, train yourself to be godly. You've heard me quote that a lot. Train yourself to be godly. Train yourself. It's not the pastor's job to train you when it comes to Scripture. Yes, there's appropriate teaching, but there's a part that belongs to you. Train yourself. You pick up your Bible or your phone, whatever you read from, and dig in. Um, Read the book of Colossians. Read the book of Philippians. Read the book of Ephesians. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John if you haven't been in Scriptures for a while. Uh, We're still in uh, point number one, grow strong. Now we're also uh, to verse 8. Excuse me, to verse 7, stay, the last part, 7c, stay thankful. And Paul says, overflowing with thankfulness. As you continue to live in Christ, be overflowing with thankfulness. Now, we've already touched on being thankful. Remember, in Colossians chapter 1, we talked about being thankful, having an attitude of gratitude. Being thankful is a key spiritual indicator of where you are with God. Are you thankful today? What are you thankful for Do you feel gratitude toward all that God has provided for you? Um, And as Paul uh, shows us here, as we walk with Christ day by day, I like the idea of walking. It's just one step at a time. You know, I I don't run all the time, just one step. And sometimes I fall down, but I get back up, and then I can take another step. But I fall down, so I get back up. That's walking. If I stay down, I stop walking. And um, so... Walking with Christ, there should be an overflow from your heart of thanksgiving. Uh, it means to be intentional, to, to make a list of things. There's an old hymn. Um, I think it's written about 1897. You may not, maybe it's called the gospel song. I don't know if it's officially a hymn. And I remember hearing this um, whenever I got around Christians. I didn't grow up with this song, but when I got around Christians, they sang this song. And then when I became an adult and got around Christians, they sang this song. And uh, I remember hearing it with a woman with a shrill voice. So I hated the song. It's one of those things that, oh, those born-again Christians, they just drive me crazy. And the song is Count Your Blessings. I'm not going to sing it. But there is some profound theology in this. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, that means when life gets hard, the storms of life, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings... Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Uh, Next slide. This is a course. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Repetition is good for us. Okay, next. Are you ever burdened with the load of care? Yeah, I could. we could probably interview you today. You've got some people here that are carrying burdens. They're heavy. Does the cross seem heavy? You're called to bear. Count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly, and you will be singing as the day goes by. This song is instructing us that this can change our perspective when we take time to count, to list out with thanksgiving things that God has done and provided for us. When you look at it, you have to sing the chorus between the two verses, and then here comes... When you look at others... Boy, we like to do that. 
Look at others. Look what they have. With their lands and gold, think what Christ has promised you, his wealth untold in the spiritual realm. I want it in the physical realm. Count your many blessings. Money cannot buy your reward in heaven nor your home on high. That is just loaded with solid truth. How many people have told you to be thankful? Yet, it's so important. It's crucial for a follower of Christ. Um, In 2003, two researchers, Robert Emmons and Michael McCullough, did research to determine, basically, if it's true that counting your blessings is is good for you. Does it really make a difference? Their research was called Count Your Blessings Versus Burdens, an experimental investigation of gratitude and subjective well-being in life. They selected, uh, they did this in two two studies. First, they selected 201 uh, students in a health psychology class and divided them into three groups. They asked the first group... um, Uh, they rated, they rated um, well-being for each individual, gratefulness, physical health, and their level of exercise. The, th- the three groups, the first group was assigned once a week for 10 weeks, make a list of five things you're grateful for. That was group number one. Just once a week, five things you're grateful for. The second group... Um, were to write down once a week for 10 weeks five hassles that they faced or five irritants of the week. The third group was just to write down for 10 weeks five events or circumstances in their week. And what they discovered was uh, in the list of the people who were grateful said things like, "Uh, I'm grateful for waking up this, this morning. I'm grateful for wonderful parents. Can you imagine these are college students? Uh, I'm grateful to the Lord for another day. And then for the hassles or irritants, this group included things like, it was hard to find parking. Those things are traumatic, you know. (laughs) Having a messy kitchen. Uh, Having a horrible test score in psychology. But this is what life is really all about, isn't it? This, This is what gets us up and down and stresses us out. Um, the grateful group, this was their conclusion on the first study, the grateful group were more positive about the upcoming week and uh, they were more positive about life as a whole. They were healthier and exercised significantly more often than the other groups. In study number two, they had some questions and so they decided to do a second study. Uh, and they, so they grabbed an entirely new batch of uh, people for this study. So in search of more data, they, they, they enlisted two groups, 166 uh, new college students in the health psychology area, and 65 adults with neuromuscular diseases. And... Um, They had a questionnaire for college students, the same kind of questionnaire they had before for college students. This time, instead of for 10 days, uh, uh, they did did it for 13 days instead of 10 weeks. And they did it for 21 days 
for patients of neuromuscular diseases. Researchers learned that simply writing down things that you are grateful for improves your emotional outlook on life. Those patients with neuromuscular diseases wrote down things that they were grateful for. They reported getting uh, significantly more sleep and feeling more refreshed when they woke up for being thankful. Researchers concluded that enumerating things that you are grateful for could be helpful in treating mild forms of depression. Now, the Bible says be thankful. <laughs> you know, you can wait to, you know, read the reports, but there's, a, there's sort of like a spiritual design in the universe why having a thankful heart impacts our lives. Uh, the most important one for us is God tells us to be thankful, and then we get the results back to us, probably way more than these two groups did. So grow strong. Verse 8, watch out. Number 2, on your outline, watch out. Be cult- beware of culturally dr- driven philosophy. Look at verse 8. Uh, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Philosophy means lover of wisdom, to love wisdom. Philosophy, this is, you know, sometimes Christians get messed up with this, but philosophy in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with philosophy in and of itself. Um, Philosophy can become a problem when it contradicts scripture, when it becomes sort of man-centered and not God's center. A philosophy of life that it's informed by scripture can can promote a Christian worldview. And by the way, when I teach scripture, when I teach the Bible, my goal is for people to gain truth, to understand truth, and to expand their own worldview so that they create a sort of like a shield or a, a force field or a filter that's scripture, so that when the world comes at them with ideas, it's got to it's be filtered through, well, what does scripture say about this? I need to see what scripture says. Or that, that's a nice idea, but it seems off a little bit. I need to see what the scripture says. So, uh, Paul warns us here about, and this is what was happening in the first century, there were Gnostic philosophers creeping into the church, at least whether they were Christians or so-called Christians or Uh, whether people were dabbling in this, but it was hollow and deceptive, and it depended on human tradition. Now, when I was in college, I happened to major in philosophy. I try not to talk about philosophy too much. Uh, I find it very fascinating. I find it very stimulating to talk about philosophy or to think about ideas. Let me share one of the most uh, influential people of my time in college and his name is John Paul Sartre. And he said, life is a bubble floating on the sea of nothingness. I paid tuition for ideas like this. But people write things like this. And you know, that sounds really silly, doesn't it? Well, we know better than that. We're smarter than that. And yet, this idea, and he's not the only one that thought like this. This is existentialism. He's an atheistic existentialist. Um, an atheist, no God, God does not exist. And so if you try to deal with life without God, you've got to come up with life on your own. And uh, he said, man is the measure of all things. Now you begin to understand our culture. Man 
is the measure of all things. So when it comes to ethics, when it comes to morality, there are no givens. Any geometry, math people here, when you have principles and uh, uh, statements that are given, so we, can, we assume these are, we already know these are true, so we operate based on this truth. Well, he said, when it comes to morality, there are no givens. So a man is the measure of all things, so I decide what's right and wrong. And he would say something cool like, it has to be meaningful, it has to be sort of life-giving kind of thing to be significant. Uh, it, has to, it has to relate to essence, which is the way he would say it. And uh, out of this perspective, in my lifetime, has come some amazing things. And he's not, you know, he doesn't get credit for all of it. I'm just showing you hollow and empty philosophy. Um, this is going to date me a little bit, but I, I, I'm teaching history here. Um, you only go around once in life, therefore grab all the gusto you can get. Anybody ever heard that? That's a beer commercial <laughs> in the late 60s. And that's the philosophy of life. You only go around once. Man, go for it. And one that you've all heard, it's the same story. If it feels good, do it. That's philosophy. That's an ethical system. If you leave God out, if there are no givens, if it feels good and you want to do it, why not do it? Now, that's a hollow philosophy that in the world that you live. And there are many variations of that. So Paul says, beware of culturally driven philosophy. Beware of human traditions also, um, this is it's really philosophy based on human traditions. Um, wh when we examine life, truth that we know absolutely is revealed in Scripture. What I know about the universe absolutely is revealed in Scripture. What I know about God absolutely is revealed in Scripture. What I know about man, absolutely, is revealed in Scripture. What I know about salvation, absolutely, is revealed in Scripture. The danger is, sometimes, that we humans like to reason and reflect and begin to leave God out of the equation, and we come up with our own ideas. For example, one of the ideas we live in a world with, I don't know where you stand on this, but we live in a world that is very comfortable with the concept of evolution. You don't need God, and everything came from, I don't know what, some primordial soup, maybe. That's a worldview. It leads to all kinds of conclusions. One would be morality. If, if, we're, if we're just evolving, is it the survival of the fittest or the smartest? What is it? And um, another thing we face is the value of human life. How valuable is human life? What about the unborn child? Okay? There are philosophical views that are different than biblical views. And we have to be able to look at Scripture and say, what course do we choose here? What does Scripture say here when it comes to uh, the unborn child? Or what about marriage? Scripture says 
Jesus affirmed this clearly. I'm so glad he affirmed this. He goes back to Genesis chapter 2 about the man and the woman, and the husband leaves his mother and father and joins together with his wife, and the two become one. And Jesus said that's the foundation of marriage. But we live in a culture today that has a virtue, virtue called tolerance. And who are we to tell other people who can get married or not get married? And yet, we have Scripture revealed by God that isn't just up to human reasoning, human tradition. All I'm saying is, this is why we need to know God's Word. Because of, it's so easy to feel bad for people who have a different view than us. And yet, you can love them. You don't have to agree with them just because you feel bad. Beware of human traditions. Okay, let's go on. Number three, um, understand truth, verses 9 through 15. We're going to sail through this. I plan to sail through it all along. Um, first of all, understands Christ's fullness. I think you can see why we can. Verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That is one of the strongest statements you'll find in the Bible about who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. And he still is. He didn't, he's not dead. He's alive. He is God in the flesh. And if you understand that, and when you place that in implications of your worldview, it's going to make a profound difference. That's what the Apostle Paul is continually rem reminding the Colossians about. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. We could go back and read Colossians 1, 15 through 20 one more time. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority, which, is, which are all about angels. He's the head over them. Um, now, let me remind you of a key word here. I, I referred to it, fullness. Fullness, pleroma, the Greek word, was a technical word related to Gnostic philosophy. And it was, a, it was about mediation between God and man. It was about that connector between the... Uh, temporal now the flesh and the eternal and the gnostics were looking had all kinds of ideas they thought it might be the angels some of them thought it might be the heavenly body of the stars with maybe angels behind them um, and there was there's a whole group of things that made up the play roma the fullness and paul says jesus is it he's the fullness got it he's it he's it he, you don't need any more than that and you have all the fullness in him. You have everything you need in him. Everything. That's his point. Not a lot to add there. Verse 11. Understand the new heart. This is a little bit complicated, but let me wade through it. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcision, circumcised with a circumcision not performed by hands. Oh, no, we're going to talk about circumcision. Here's what you need to know. Circumcision was a sign of the Old Testament covenant. For the Jewish nation Israel in the Old Testament started with Abraham. And to show your obedience to God, parents had their, their male children circumcised. A chunk of flesh came off of uh, their eight-day-old male child. It was circumcision. And the way you showed your obedience and the way you demonstrated faith was having your male children circumcised. Okay? That was just a sign of the Old Covenant. Do you belong? Your children are circumcised. You do it by faith. Um, 
And so your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So Paul's not concerned here about Old Testament circumcision. He's talking about an idea that comes new with Christ. And it's circumcision of the heart. You were circumcised by Christ. And it's not just for male children. It's for everybody, okay? Uh, another passage helps this is Romans two twenty-eight through 30. A person who's not a Jew is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And right there in his argument, he's referring to who belongs to God. And he's talking about the possibility of even you be considering a true Jew if you are a true follower of Christ. Don't worry about that, okay? No, a person is a Jew who is inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code, not by the law. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Circumcision is about circumcision of the heart. And the idea is, is when you place your faith in Christ, before you were a believer, your heart was calloused. It was hardened toward God. And Jesus, when you place your faith in him, just took a chunk of calloused heart away from you so that your heart now was open to God. And you now had access to God truly. That's circumcision of the heart. It's a spiritual work of God. It's another way of talking about being born again. It's that simple, okay? You have to understand your new heart. Verse 12, understand Christ's spiritual authority, having been buried with him in baptism. So now he's going to come to the sign of the new covenant, baptism. Circumcision, sign of the old covenant. Uh, old uh, covenant. Circumcision, <laughs> baptism, sign of new covenant in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Um, In water baptism, water baptism is a symbol of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's a symbol. It's a picture of an inner spiritual reality. In the spiritual realm, spiritual baptism is identification with Christ's death, his burial and resurrection, raised again to a new life. Um, So the key uh, point here I want to make about understanding Christ's spiritual authority is you were raised with him through faith. Something happened at your conversion, you were raised with Christ. He has spiritual authority, and now he's raised you to a new position. Let me go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You still with me here? You all believe that? All right. Because even if I say it that simple, if you're not with me, you don't know what to say. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. You have a position in the heavenly realms, in Christ, only because of him. Position he's given you, it's a position of authority. It's the same authority that he has in Christ, okay? You have that authority. You don't deserve it. It's not because you're spiritually cool. It's because it's a gift, okay? Uh, Understand, uh, verses 13 and 14, Christ's forgiveness. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Key concept, God made you alive. You are not dead. You may look dead. You may act dead, but you are not. You are alive in Christ if you've placed your faith in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. How many sins? 
all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I hate to rush you this. This is really a cool concept. But here's the deal. When Jesus was crucified, you remember, there was a sign above his head, nailed to the cross, King of the Jews. These were the charges against Jesus. This was Jesus' sin. He was a rebel. He was a blasphemer. He said he was Messiah God. And so they wanted to crucify him. However, what really happened is, your charges, the charges God had against you. Let's just go ahead and list some of the things that you, how you've disobeyed God, all right? The worst things, and, and then they got nailed to the cross, and above Jesus' name was your stuff and my stuff. And then when he died, they're all canceled, blotted out, removed, no more, forgiven, paid for. That's what happened at the cross. That's forgiveness. Lastly, understand uh, Christ's victory over evil uh, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Real quickly, in ancient times, when a king or a commanding general defeated an opposing army, one of the things they often did was they, they took the spoils of war and they took those people they had vanquished And they picked out their key leaders. Maybe they had the king. Maybe they had the generals or army officers. And they put them in a parade, probably in chains. And they brought them, they paraded them wherever they went. Sometimes they went back to their home country. Sometimes they went to the foreign countries. But they brought all of their prisoners through. But here's the deal. When Jesus died on the cross, he took captive all the forces of darkness and paraded them in the spiritual realms. And they are defeated. Now, there's a sense they have permission to operate right now on earth. Ultimately, they're defeated. And you have Jesus' authority until he's ready to come back and establish his kingdom forever. So, uh, understand victory over evil. So, understand the truth. It will change your worldview. That's why we need to know the truth. Watch out. Um, for your worldview, that dis, uh, any worldview that disregards God as, all, as uh, he is revealed in Scripture, and grow strong. Continue to live in, in Jesus and move forward. Uh, stay in God's word. Be thankful.